0: Hello, friends. Welcome to another social distancing edition of the Clyde Christian Bible Church podcast. I'm recording this on Saturday night, and tomorrow, Sunday morning, we're going to try our very first church Zoom meeting. We're going to have online church. It um, might be a little bit of chaos. By the time most of you are listening to this, it will already have happened. So hopefully it was a great experience for you. Uh, But because we're having online church, we're going to change the format of these podcasts a little bit. We're not going to have a sermon during online podcasts. That's still what this forum is for. But we are going to have singing and communion and and sharing time, prayer time. So there won't be any songs on this uh, version of the podcast from here moving forward, uh, as long as the Sunday morning online church meetings go well, because we'll be having singing there instead. So, From now on, for the next foreseeable while until we reassess and determine when we're going to have church in the building again, for the foreseeable future, there will just be sermon during this podcast and prayer. So that's exciting that we get to do online church. Looking forward to that very much. But it also means we're going to get right into the sermon here. Really, when you think about it, there isn't a whole lot that Angie and I require of our girls. We expect their rooms to stay tidy. We expect their dishes to go in the sink, we expect them to fold their laundry before stuffing it in the dresser, we expect them to take care of their things, and we expect absolute, total, complete obedience to every word we direct at them, no questions asked. Is that so hard? Now, I'm kidding, but only kind of. Angie and I feel like we are fair parents, and the directions we give are generally for their own benefit, and for our own peace of mind. So when I say, girls, finish your supper, I don't want whining or bargaining or sneaking food into the bathroom garbage, and that's definitely been a thing before. Instead, I want them to finish their supper because they need the nutrients, and a full tummy helps them sleep better, and wastefulness drives me crazy, and it's offensive to my wife when they complain about the meal. In other words, complete obedience benefits them, and it benefits their parents, especially their parents' mental health. Now, of course, as you know, complete obedience isn't exactly a realistic goal when it comes to child rearing, except, of course, for my parents, whose firstborn son was a portrait of absolute conformity to expected behavior, as you probably guessed. But for every other human child in history, complete obedience is unrealistic. We understand that, of course, and there's room for grace and forgiveness and learning, plus, sometimes our commands are clouded by selfish desires. So, us telling them not to play in the mud has less to do with their youthful exuberance and more to do with our laundry loads. But generally, the commands we issue from on high are for their physical, emotional, and social well-being. And ours, as it turns out. That's the way it's been since the dawn of humanity. An example. A couple weeks ago, we went for a family walk with Angie and I on foot and the girls on their bikes. While we were walking, a truck pulled up and it turned out to be a family friend. Angie and I stopped and chatted for a bit. Meanwhile, the girls up ahead saw that we had stopped and turned their bikes around to see who it was. One daughter, who will remain nameless, but whose name rhymes with Toei, came ripping up on her bicycle on the gravel road right beside our friend's new truck. After my minor heart attack, I asked Zoe, oh, sorry, Toey, to move away from the truck because it would be easy to scratch it, and our friends don't want that. After the friend left, we explained to all three that when riding bicycles, It's important to give vehicles lots of space so you don't get hurt and so you don't scratch the vehicle up, because nobody likes getting their vehicle scratched up. I was met with a chorus of OK Dads and nodded Heads. Then the weekend came, and we went for another family bike ride. This time the girls were racing down the sidewalk and almost clipped our neighbor's truck, which was parked in his driveway. A very familiar follow-up conversation was had, give vehicles their space, especially this vehicle in particular, which is very close to the sidewalk. Two days later, I heard another daughter, who we'll call Vegan, come running into the house. This anonymous daughter, whose name rhymes with Vegan, is often the bearer of bad news, because she is honest and principled and enjoys tattling on her sisters. Her news this time was that one of the other girls had run into the neighbor's truck, parked in his driveway. Yes, that neighbor's truck, the very same one that just two days earlier Angie and I had strongly emphasized the need to stay away from on their bikes, for their own good and for the benefit of our neighbor. After being met with a chorus of excuses and half hearted apologies, I marched all three of the girls down to the neighbor's house, caught a glimpse of a scratched up tail light, and had them issue a formal apology to our victimized neighbor, who was very kind and forgiving. And who answered the door shirtless, which has nothing to do with anything other than I found it hilarious. Meanwhile, back at the Lance household, a conversation was had. There was a problem. They had disobeyed, and the consequences of that disobedience were exactly as we had told them the truck was scratched by their reckless bicycling. They had been warned twice in less than a week, and once about this exact truck, but it still didn't sink in. When met with the force of their reckless desires, they couldn't obey. That disobedience was a problem for the girls, for us as parents, and for our shirtless neighbor with a freshly scratched Silverado. And so the bikes were taken away and parked in the shed for a week, and hopefully lessons were learned. That brings us to 1 Samuel 13. 1 Samuel 13 marks the beginning of the end for King Saul's grip on the kingship of Israel. The previous few chapters had marked the initiation of that monarchy, which was still just a figurehead situation. Sure, Saul was named king, but even the king of Israel was answerable to the king of all kings, God himself, not to mention God's spokesperson, Samuel. That was to be the model for all Israelite kings. Sure, they can lead the people. Sure, they can serve as mighty rescuers or messiahs from time to time. Sure, they can have a share of the power and profit and privilege that comes with the title, but they had better not forget who holds the real power and who gets the real glory, and who makes the real decisions. Those roles belong to Yahweh, as voiced by his ambassadors, the prophets. God is still to be king. Prophets are still the true servant leaders of Israel. And as for the human king? Well, the human king's role is to seek, listen to, and obey the will of his master, Yahweh. Two weeks ago, we saw this arrangement work beautifully. Confronted with the threat of the Ammonites, King Saul was filled with the spirit of God, and that holy righteous anger in the face of oppression and injustice led to Saul delivering God's people. Saul was open and obedient to the spirit of God, and God fueled the victory. But today's story and the two chapters that follow illustrate a king who has turned from that winning formula of God first and me second. Saul turns into a king who doesn't pursue or reflect the heart of God. And for that, he'll have more than just his bicycle taken away. He'll have a royal dynasty taken away. The problem is one of disobedience. But as we'll see, the problem runs deeper than that. And like my girls on their bicycles, it's a problem that we need to face in ourselves as well. Let's read chapter 13, the beginning of Saul's end. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel, 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and a 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin, the rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Gibeah, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with three thousand chariots, six thousand charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth Avon. When the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard pressed, they hid in caves and thickets, among the rocks, and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings, and Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you didn't come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal, and went up to Gibeah and Benjamin, and Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about six hundred. Saul and his son Jonathan, this is the same Jonathan who had initiated the fight back in verse three. Saul and his son Jonathan and the men with them were staying in Gibeah and Benjamin when the Philistines camped at Michmash. Raiding parties went out from the Philistine camp in three detachments. One turned towards Ophrah in the vicinity of Shul, another towards Beth Haran, and the third toward the borderland overlooking the valley of Zeboam facing the desert. Basically all that means, I don't know the geography, but what I read, it just means they cut Israel off from the northern tribes so they could they couldn't get reinforcements. This is interesting. Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plowshares, mattocks, axes, and sickles sharpened. The price was two thirds of a shekel for sharpening plowshares and mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes, and for re pointing goads. So on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. The first third of this story, and the final third of this story, exists to demonstrate the seriousness of the challenge facing Saul and the Israelites. The first third of the story demonstrates that the Philistines have superior numbers. Even without the hyperbole of the sand on the seashore statement, the Philistine army was still significantly larger than Israel's ragtag volunteer militia. The final third of the story, demonstrates that the Philistines also have superior technology, not just superior numbers. They actually have superior technology. They've monopolized the ironworks and blacksmithing necessary to create meaningful weapons. Israel is about to face off against a well-oiled war machine with little more than stones and wood, and to make matters worse, God's people are scattering in the face of impending doom. Combined, these dire circumstances of the opening and closing of this chapter set up the events of the next chapter, when the battle will reach its fullness. But it also sets up a comparison to chapter 11. That was the story of the Ammonite king who sought to subdue and humiliate Israel with his own superiority. On the surface, those two circumstances are identical, but really they couldn't be further apart. The first significant difference between the battle against the Ammonites in chapter 11 and this story, chapter 13, is that whereas in chapter 11 the Ammonites were the oppressive aggressors, Here it's Israel that's picking the fight through the actions of a new character, Jonathan. Just a few words about Jonathan. We meet Jonathan for the first time in verses 2 and 3, and it's revealed at the end of the story that Jonathan is Saul's son. Jonathan will become a crucially important player in the unfolding story of 1 Samuel. He represents the space between Saul's terrible kingship and David's excellent one, since he will become David's best friend and will actively protect David from his crazed father. And he must have been spectacularly young. If it's true that Saul was 30 at the start of his reign, and Jonathan is already starting battle so early in his father's kingship, then he must be what we'd call a teenager at this point. They didn't really have teenagers back then. You you were a boy and then you were a man, period. But Jonathan must have been really young when this was all unfolding. Jonathan will eventually become the third greatest hero in this story, after David and Samuel Maybe fourth greatest if you count Hannah. But for now, he is recklessly starting wars with the Philistines, who will be a constant thorn in Saul's and Israel's side, eventually leading to Saul's death on the battlefield. So that's the first contrast. In chapter 11, the Ammonites were the aggressors. Now in chapter 13, the Israelites are the aggressors. But there's a bigger contrast between this chapter and the earlier victorious battle against those Ammonites. In chapter 11, Saul is filled with God's spirit, which energizes and enlivens the fighting men of Israel. Here, there is absolutely no mention of God's Spirit, which Saul doesn't even seem to notice. But with the absence of the Spirit comes a corresponding sense of cowardice and fear pervading all of Israel's warriors, very much unlike chapter 11. There, they were roused for battle, they were eager and faithful to, to overthrow the oppressors. Here, they are trembling, they're hiding, they're fleeing. As Walter Brueggemann writes, the Israelites do not act like those who are allied with the Spirit. That's a pretty powerful statement. The author of 1 Samuel wants to demonstrate the very real threat of annihilation facing Saul and the Israelites. And at the same time, the author of 1 Samuel wants to remind us that this situation is nothing new for God's people. They've been here before, just two chapters earlier. So the question is, will Saul lead them to victory again? Or will God abandon his people as he did with the ark? Stay tuned next week for more. But that's the first and final thirds of the chapter verses 1-7, to seven, the first third, and verses 15-22, to 22, the final third. It shows the dire straits of Saul and the Israelites, who march into next week's battle without so much as a sword to swing. They face a mighty, oppressive enemy, as they had in chapter 11, but this time with no spirit of God and no divinely inspired confidence. The first section and final section set the stage for what will come by drawing our attention to events of the recent past. But it's the middle section, the middle third, the interaction between Saul and Samuel, where we find the fascinating meat of this passage. Let's reread verses 7 to 14 real quick. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him what have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you didn't come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Man, what happened with our friend Saul? Things were looking so promising. In chapter 9, he was repeatedly announced with great fanfare as the new king by Samuel himself, the same Samuel who is now dismissing him. Saul became the anointed one, the Messiah, who rescued his people from a great enemy despite enormous odds against. God himself had chosen Saul. He wasn't looking for the throne, he was just looking for some donkeys. But then there was a whirlwind of feasts and fanciness and celebrations and ceremonies, blessings that Saul himself was clearly not ready for. And before you know it, all of Israel is gathered before Samuel, who's drawing lots to name the new king, and lo and behold, it's our boy Saul, who is hiding among the luggage. He didn't ask for this. But he had shown that he was quite capable just two chapters earlier during that commanding victory over the Ammonites, in which Saul, the Messiah figure, retained no glory for himself but gave it all to God, in which there was grace and forgiveness of enemies and justice for the oppressed, an anointed servant bringing wrath on those who seek to crush God's holy name and God's chosen people. After all that tremendous success, Saul is undone because he didn't wait an extra half hour? Now, Here in chapter 13, Saul finds himself in a similar situation to chapter 11, except everything is completely different. The people are afraid. They're not rallying to him as they had against the Ammonites. The Spirit of God is nowhere to be found. Instead of blessings, Saul is cursed. And instead of victorious promises, Saul will have his kingdom ripped from him and given to someone else. It was God who called Saul, and God who anointed Saul, and God who filled Saul with power in order to claim the victory over the Ammonites in chapter 11. And now, two chapters later, God just turns his back on Saul, tosses him aside? Frankly, without a deeper examination, it's not a great look for Yahweh. Brueggemann does a great job of outlining why this passage is so problematic. Saul's decision to offer a sacrifice is a good one albeit a political one. Brueggemann states, the sacrifice inevitably had the political effect of evoking and underscoring the religious commitment so crucial to the war effort. The sacrifice was to overcome the problem of lack of success. It's like, I, it made me think of like when a president has a presidential prayer breakfast. The president may not have anything to do with Christianity at all, but wants the support of the Christians for whatever whatever thing he's doing. It's not a bad idea, beginning a major campaign by invoking the name of God and seeking his blessing. Plus, Saul's reasons for performing the sacrifice himself, rather than waiting for Samuel, seem sound enough. Saul isn't willing to risk the morale of his already diminished forces. With every hour that passes, the Philistines get stronger and more numerous, while the Israelites diminish and get more timid. As Samuel arrives, it seems that Saul is completely oblivious to his error. If he's sinned, it's not intentional. He greets Samuel properly and is deferential to him, as in, he goes out to greet Samuel rather than making Samuel come to him. He's showing Samuel the respect he deserves. When asked harshly and accusatively by Samuel, what have you done, Saul's arguments are sound and sensible and pragmatic. The troops are scattering, I had to do something. That sounds reasonable. Plus, I I didn't want to enter the battle without a proper sacrifice. That seems theologically proper. And besides, Samuel, you told me to wait seven days, and I did. I waited, and you didn't come. Although it looks like you were springing a trap for me, testing me to see if I would fully obey, because you strolled up right after the offering was finished. You couldn't have come an hour earlier and spared me the need to overstep my bounds? I did as you instructed. What's the big deal? I waited seven days. And what's more, as it says in the Hebrew verse 12, I forced myself to perform the sacrifice. I didn't want to do it. I had no intention of offending anyone. I didn't perform the sacrifice greedily or eagerly or aggressively. I didn't do it to show you up or inflate myself. I simply did what needed to be done because I am the king and the king does what needs to be done. But Samuel is not convinced. Saul has not done what needed to be done. In fact, he drops an F bomb on Saul. In the Old Testament, to be a fool is to be diametrically opposed to the will and purpose of God. God's people seek wisdom. Those who are fools are far from the heart of God. All of Saul's arguments and justifications and excuses add up to precisely nothing. He has behaved foolishly. Samuel brings up a command that Saul has neglected. We have no record of this command, although verse 8 suggested earlier that Samuel had instructed Saul to wait for seven days. Perhaps Samuel is inflating his own importance? Perhaps, as Brueggemann suggests, the only commandment that seems to have been broken is thou shalt not violate Samuel's authority? Maybe Samuel has it out for Saul, and is waiting for the slightest screw-up to condemn the new king, and by extension, condemn Israel's sinful desire to replace God's royal leadership with a much lesser human facsimile. Saul's crime seems minor, and his punishment seems excessive especially because we, who have the whole Bible before us, are privileged to know the stories that come later. So we know that both David and Solomon, the two kings who follow Saul, both commit this exact same act. Both David and Solomon offer sacrifices independent of a higher spiritual authority. They don't get a priest or prophet like Samuel to do the sacrifices. David and Solomon just do it themselves. And neither David nor Solomon are disciplined as harshly as Saul is here. In fact, they aren't disciplined at all. Why is Saul punished so brutally? And it gets worse. Just to twist the knife into Saul's psyche, Samuel mentions a promise of eternal kingship for Saul's household had he been faithful. It's especially cruel to bring up what might have been after what might have been becomes no longer can be. Had Saul known about God's intended promise, maybe he would have waited the extra half hour. Instead, Samuel tortures Saul by ripping away a glorious promise that Saul never even knew was on the table. It really seems as though Samuel's got it out for Saul. Maybe Samuel was deliberately late, as hinted at earlier, and he came with a pre-written message of condemnation stored resolutely in the back of his mind. It seems like Saul is a tragic figure destined to fail, a propped-up straw king who never had the backing of the prophet who anointed him, or even the God who chose him. Maybe. Maybe there's an anti-Saul bias in Samuel, or the authors of First Samuel, or even God himself. Maybe. But I don't think so. Sure, Saul has the promise of a glorious lineage of kings ripped away from him for the royal equivalent of scratching the neighbor's taillight. The problem of Saul's disobedience is obvious, but not overwhelmingly so. After all, his arguments are legit. The circumstances were dire, he was just trying to do the right thing, and he did wait for you, Samuel. He seems innocent, and the punishment seems excessive. But it's also true that the taillight cannot get unscratched. He had been told, and he disobeyed. And Saul is the first of his kind, the exemplar upon which future kingships would be modeled to some degree. He needed to know his place, and his place was to seek hear, and obey the directions of the true king, Yahweh, as issued from Israel's true leader, Samuel. Samuel had given those directions, and Saul had disobeyed them. It was his place to seek the will of God, and to give the glory and honor to God once God's will was discerned. It was not Saul's place to perform this ritual. It was not Saul's place to usurp authority from Samuel, the only man fit to offer such a momentous sacrifice. Moreover, It was not Saul's place to trust in what has worked in the past, to trust in his own abilities. This story is a rough equivalent to the problem in chapter 4. There, Israel was similarly faced with the oppressive force of the Philistines, and there, the Israelites similarly placed their trust in themselves and their history, rather than placing their trust in the God who oversaw and manifested that entire history. They marched the Ark of the Covenant out like a magical talisman, trying to manipulate God into victory, rather than seeking the will of the God seated upon that ark. They had the right idea, but they trusted in their own cleverness. They trusted in routine and ceremony. They never trusted in Yahweh. And for that, they experienced Ichabod, the departing of his glory. Saul's punishment is partly based on a similar thing. By failing to obey Samuel, and by extension Yahweh, Saul is taking matters into his own hands. The kings of Israel had to learn this lesson, even if they were disciplined harshly for it. The matters are never in their own hands. The matters are always in the powerful, loving hands of God. They cannot become the takers that Samuel warned the people about. They cannot take power that isn't theirs. They cannot take action that is contrary to God's will. They cannot take glory for themselves. In some way, Saul is doing all of these things by prematurely performing the sacrifice himself rather than waiting for Samuel as he was instructed. Instead of taking, Israel's leaders are to give. They are to give glory to God, give submission to God, they are to give thanks to God, and most importantly, they are to give trust to the king who is superior to themselves. Saul doesn't give any of these things, even if his sin is accidental. He doesn't give God his trust. He takes actions on his own, contrary to God's direction. He has disobeyed, and that disobedience is never a small thing. It is always, as Samuel declares, completely foolish to disobey God. But still, that doesn't seem quite right to me. Something still bothers me. Sure, Saul was a taker instead of a giver here. Sure, he has proven himself disobedient, even if it's for the right reasons. But still, did he ever stand a chance? After all, David, the greatest king, the the king that this whole story is leading up to, David would commit far greater sins than this. You want to talk about a king who's a taker? How about David taking liberties with his authority by taking Bathsheba, a married woman, and then taking the life of her husband Uriah? How's that for taking? It's true that David was punished for that incident, but it's also true he was blessed with the exact same thing that Saul loses in this chapter, an eternal kingdom with descendants whose rule never ends, leading to the ultimate Messiah, Jesus Christ. Yes, Saul was disobedient, but so was David, and David's sins were far more ugly and far more costly to his neighbors than Saul's sins were here in chapter 13. So what gives? What is it about this particular incident That causes such a harsh reaction from Samuel and Yahweh. Let's go back for a second to my girls and their reckless disobedience with the scratched truck. Yes, their disobedience was extremely frustrating. We had laid out clear expectations for all three of them and still the taillight got scratched. It was foolish and reckless and dangerous of them, with very real consequences for them and our neighbor. After it happened, Angie and I had a conversation with all three girls. We explained to them that the problem was the disobedience, yes, that was what got their bikes taken away. For Saul, the problem was likewise disobedience, and he got his kingdom taken away. But there was a follow up discussion that happened with the girl who actually committed the crime. And the follow up went like this Remember when I told the story earlier, I mentioned that a particular daughter, a vegan, the usual disher of dirt on her sisters, was the one who came and told us about the scratch? To Angie and I, That was the root of the deeper issue. The problem was the disobedience, for sure. But the deeper problem was that the guilty party wasn't the one who came to confess. She was not the one who came and told us. In fact, she told the other girls that she was never going to tell us. She was hoping no one would ever find out that she'd get off scot-free. The deeper problem was that she broke our trust and didn't come forward to apologize and make the situation right. Instead, we got, as I mentioned earlier, a chorus of excuses and half-hearted apologies. The problem was the disobedience, but the bigger problem wasn't the problem. The bigger problem was her inability to own up to the problem and make it right. I believe the same is true of King Saul. The problem, as outlined by Samuel, is the disobedience. But David would later prove far more disobedient and still retain God's blessing. Therefore, I don't think the problem is the problem. It's about more than just disobedience, because no human is ever fully obedient. Instead, I think the real problem for Saul was his attitude about the problem. Like the girls, Saul meets Samuel's accusation with a chorus of excuses and half-hearted apologies. And that, I think, is the real problem. It's the same lesson that Israel had to learn in chapter 7. You might remember that story. That's when the ark had been returned to Israel, but the Philistines are again gathering for a fight. So Samuel orders all of Israel to get rid of their idols and commit themselves to the Lord. That's step one. Get rid of the problem, the idolatry, and gather before the Lord. But it's step two that's the big deal. He has them assemble at Mizpah. And what do they do when they're together? They repent. They confess their many sins, and in doing so, reestablish the ancient order of things between God and his people. They cry out, and he saves them. They cried out their sins, and he forgave them. They cried out for help from the Philistines, and he sent thunder to confuse and frighten their enemies. Confronted with their sins, Israel confessed, and they cried out, and God confirmed his beautiful ancient covenant with his people. Saul, in chapter 13, has not learned the lesson of chapter 7. He doesn't make confessions, he makes excuses. He doesn't cry out to God except to defend his own disobedience and he doesn't get covenantal confirmation. Rather, he receives a disciplinary curse for his foolishness. Foolishness for disobedience, foolishness for faithlessly taking matters into his own hands, and foolishness for failing to repent when confronted with his failure. It's true that Saul is a bit of a tragic figure. It seems like he's destined to fail. It's easy to sympathize with Saul, but at the same time, we have to learn from Saul's mistake. The thing that made David a great king wasn't his military superiority. Saul had that too. It wasn't David's intriguing rags-to-riches story. Saul had that too. It wasn't his blameless perfection or perfect obedience because neither Saul nor David had that. No one does. Instead, what will make David a great king and separate him from Saul was the single attribute named by Samuel in verse 14. Unlike Saul, David would be a man after God's own heart. That's the thing that separates Saul from David. David was a man after God's own heart. It's about more than obedience. It's about faithful devotion. No person is perfectly obedient, though we should always try to be as obedient as possible with the help of God's Spirit. But all people are imperfect and wayward and disobedient, We all fail to heed the instructions of our heavenly parent, and we all scratch up our neighbor's figurative pickup trucks as a result. We are all reckless children who don't listen very well. But the thing that sets us apart as people pursuing the heart of God isn't our perfection. We're going to be disobedient. We're going to cause problems. We are not perfect people. It's what we do with those problems that shows a heart for God. Do we excuse our recklessness? Do we explain away our disobedience? Do we fail to repent and instead run the other way? Or do we confess our mistakes, cry out to our loving Heavenly Parent for forgiveness and wisdom and strength, and then recommit to following Him faithfully and listening better next time? We all have problems in our walk with God, but the problem isn't the problem. The real problem isn't just our disobedience. The real problem is our attitude about the problem. Sure, our disobedience is problematic. It makes us into fools. But God loves each one of his foolish children. He's not waiting to rip promises away from us at the first sign of waywardness. Instead, he's hoping we'll learn from our mistakes. He's hoping we own up to our shortcomings and turn to him for the strength we need to learn from them. Like Saul, we need to learn our place. And our place is in his strong, caring hands. We can't barge ahead on our own strength, even if we're barging into things that are technically right and good. Instead, we have to trust his instructions to us, and Jesus gave us plenty of great instructions. Our place that we need to learn is one of obedience, like a child to a parent. But when we get into problems, the thing that demonstrates our heart for God is how we respond. Do we respond with defensiveness, excuses, failure to admit wrongdoing? Or do we respond to our mistakes with confession, crying out to God, and recommitment? If it had been the girl who made the mistake coming to us and admitting wrongdoing, there wouldn't have been nearly as much wrath from Dad. The same is true with our Heavenly Father. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We all, like Lance's children, have harmed our neighbours. If you have a heart for God, you'll come to Him for forgiveness and strength and guidance and wisdom. You'll trust in His great love and move forward in redemption. You might still get your bike taken away, but hey, a kid and a king needs to learn sometime, right? Before we pray, let me just say that, quite obviously, all three of the girls that we have living in our house have learned from the master of foolish disobedience, and that's myself. We have awesome girls. This was just a fairly isolated incident of extremely obvious disobedience and, and extremely obvious consequences, but I'm pretty convinced that God gives us children to teach us about ourselves. And I see a lot of myself in the the foolish, disobedient, recklessness of, of our girls with the bicycle story. I see a lot of myself. And again, the problem with myself isn't just that I make mistakes. The problem with myself is how I handle those mistakes. Do I turn to God or do I turn to myself? That's the question of Saul in chapter 13. Let's pray. God, you are so good, and you are so patient with us. You are so forgiving of us. Thank you for all the ways that you strengthen us, that you fill us with wisdom to follow you closely. Father, we're going to disobey. You know this as our parent. You are disappointed in us when we do, but you are also so pleased and so proud when we turn back to you, when we cry out to you, when we recommit ourselves to you. So help us to do that. Help us to be people who follow closely to your heart. Help us to be a people who know what we're to do, who seek your will, and who listen, who do what we're called to do. Help us to be people who obey and love and serve you, Father. When we make mistakes, when we make a lot of inevitable mistakes, help us to come to you humbly, knowing that we will be forgiven. We pray all these things to you. You are a good God, and we're happy to bring them to you. Amen. All right, if you'd like to join us for any future Clyde Christian Bible Church online Zoom meetings, uh, please contact uh, me, Chris Lance, the pastor. We'd be happy to include you in that. Uh, We'll talk again next time. Bye, everyone, and ride safe. David would be a man after God's own heart. It's about more than obedience. It's about faithful devotion. And we expect absolute, total, complete obedience to every word we direct at them, no questions asked. That sounds reasonable.